0: Jason bailey Losh, and you're listening to Seeing is Forgetting, conversations
1: on contemporary art and culture in Los Angeles and beyond. Welcome to the show. So there's some really great stuff coming up in the next few weeks. I've been commissioned to do some podcasts for Flag Art Foundation in New York City. I traveled to New York to conduct those interviews. This next interview, though, was not on that list. It just happened to come about through a friend who, and I feel incredibly fortunate and very humbled to be interviewing Mohammed Rashid Althani, founding director and chief curator of the Institute of Arab and Islamic Art in New York City. If I can give you a, a quick, not-so-eloquent breakdown of what the conversation was, Mohammed does it much better than me. We discuss the Institute and its purpose. It's opened up about two weeks ago uh, during Freeze Week, and it is there essentially to foster conversation and create understanding of a culture in greater depth than what has been provided before in New York City. What was important to me and what I understood from this as well is that it's not just about New York City. It's about going beyond that and community outreach, collaboration with other institutions beyond New York. One of the things that Mohammed said that really struck a chord, well, not just one, but one of the first things he said was he was talking about responsibility and a responsibility to affect change and break stereotypes. But specifically, he wasn't just talking about himself. He was talking about, as a society, we have a responsibility to do that. And this is his first step in doing that in New York and in the United States. He considers New York his home. That's where he's from. He moved there a while ago. The other thing that I thought was really important is that it's easy for us to get pigeonholed, especially in our political climate right now, where everything is so partisan and we have an innate ability to only see the things that affect change on us directly, that we need to be looking toward the future. And Muhammad talks about the future and what we are looking at, not today and not being reactionary toward things that are happening today, but looking toward 10 years from now or 20 years from now or 100 years from now. And how do we get beyond what is happening in the present to look at what's happening tomorrow? I want to thank Mohammed for taking the time. And I also want to thank Veronica Fernandez for giving me the opportunity to speak to her good friend, Mohammed. Uh, without her, this interview wouldn't have taken place. So, without further ado, here's Mohammed.
0: Thank you for speaking with me. My pleasure. Yeah, and we are talking actually from, it sounds a little echoing here, you can't hear because I have the headphones, on. you do not. But we are in your institute that you've just set up, right? Yes. So the Institute of Arab and Islamic Art. Correct. New York City. This is pretty amazing. It is. (laughs) It's hard to believe that New York finally has
2: an institute that represents the Arab and Islamic region.
0: Well, it's hard to believe that it hasn't been here already. Yeah, I agree. We were introduced through a mutual friend, Veronica Fernandez. Yes. So Veronica told me that you were opening this up, and it's freeze week here in New York City. How did this come about?
2: Well, I moved to New York in 2014. And what was incredible about this city is that how global it is and how a lot of cultures, almost every culture uh, in the world is represented. Uh, So when I would go to... And it's small. And it's small, and and, I mean, it's small, but the opportunities are big. Yeah. And, And the way New York shares and represents culture is incredible. You could go to Asia society and learn something about the Asian civilization, which is very much diverse and has layers and layers and layers. You could go to the Swiss Institute, you could go to the Jewish Museum and learn about the Jewish faith and Jewish culture. You could go to America society and learn about the Latin American culture. There's so much representation that is very much needed in this city. So why did it take so long for an
0: Islamic center to be put in place?
2: Well, let me correct you with this. The okay. reason we uh, call it Institute of Arab and Islamic Art is that there's a lot of misconceptions that all Muslims are Arab and that all Arabs are Muslims, which is not true. Right. Institute of Arab and Islamic Art, because we have Arab Muslims, Arab Jews, and Arab Christians that need to be represented. And then we say Muslim because the majority of the Islamic populations are not Arab. It was very important for us to have that geographical representation and as well to share to, to the world that what is Islamic historically has been very much in touch with the Arabic civilization because the Qur'an comes in Arabic and so reinforces the language. And so it's inevitable that Muslims in China and Muslims in uh, Malaysia and Muslims in North Africa know the Arabic language. And you can divorce one from the other. So
0: it's a connecting point for
2: all of for these civilizations. For sure, for sure. And so I thought it was fair to, to use that title and have this geographical representation finally here in the city. But we have to give credit that the Asia Society does represent the the Muslim civilization from an Asian perspective. The Met has a great Islamic uh, collection. Uh PS1, MoMA, the New Museum, Guggenheim, they do shows with great artists from the region. But the problem is that they're not consistent. And so once the conversations arise, in the community here and in the U.S. they're never continued right and so it becomes problematic and so you go through gaps where incredible art is being produced in the region, incredible publications are being produced, people here are not part of you it. You just don't see it. You don't see it, you don't see it, you don't experience it. So it's out of sight out of mind yeah. a little bit as yeah, well. Yeah, too. yeah for sure that's why having a physical place is very important. The reason we have a bookstore here is that you know we can build exhibitions and and have a very clear curatorial narrative. But at the end of the day, people leave the exhibition space and they're left alone with those incredible books. Right. And so it's what, what they get with going through the books and reading them. And We're not doing a catalog, and we thought about that very carefully. And instead, we're doing publications for each of the artists because catalogs, obviously they say a lot about an exhibition, but then they don't go further into that artist uh, right. practice. It's
0: a cursory overview of yeah. what was in the exhibition but not and really about, about the practice.
2: Yeah. And books really remain. Books eventually are in libraries and universities right. and people have access to them. And I think that's very important and we have take into consideration that you know one of the artists in the exhibition, the youngest one, Donna, who's only 29 years old, has never had publications. Right. And so it's our responsibility to be able to provide her that. And it's an amazing opportunity. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Well, and it feels like you're doing anything possible to reach different avenues of having conversation or starting conversation and sort of understanding about a, a cultural uh, a community. Absolutely. Can you, we just did a quick walk through the show, which was very enlightening. Can you talk a little bit about what is in the exhibition if people come see it? And how long is it up? It's,
1: you're going to do these quarterly? It's up until
0: the end of uh, July. So, and how often are you going to curate shows into the space? We will have exhibitions quarterly. And are you always, you curated this exhibition? I
2: created this exhibition, but as well, we, we will give opportunities for curators from the region too. But, you know, exhibition one shows the relationship of four pioneering female artists relationship to Islamic architecture and geometry within their respective artistic vocabularies. And what's incredible about this exhibition is that you see how Islamic geometry transcends beyond the Islamic civilization and you see that what is being produced is very much universal. If you're someone from a Western civilization or you're American or European or you're Asian, when you walk through this exhibition you'll be able to relate to some of the works there.
0: Well, and what I thought was interesting and I was not aware of was that this the geometry is not only about architecture, it's about language.
2: Oh, for sure, absolutely. So can
0: you explain that a little bit?
2: The Qur'an came in Arabic and reinforced the importance of language. And so what happens is that a lot of the science in the Qur'an paved way into Islamic geometry. And so Islamic geometry, when it, was, when it started, was not very, very much related to architecture. It was more related to um, the cosmos, astrology. It was related to the alignments of, of the stars, the, the education you have on uh, the universe. And the formations of the wind. So it goes really beyond that. And that's why uh, that's what makes Islamic geometry universal is that it's, it's something that you can adopt in your own culture and still have something that, that would be a great influence to your people.
0: And a reference point for everybody to sort of get an inroad into yeah. these pieces oh, and who the people are and absolutely. how they work.
2: I mean, we talked about how for a majority of math students, dread algebra. <laughs> um, and algebra was invented by Al who who is a Muslim scholar uh, and mathematician. Let's
0: talk a little bit about the specific works that are in this exhibition and the artist. Yeah. The, the first artist that you showed me on the, the wall creating is Dan Awartani. And she was and creating her own language. Uh, Art- Dana Awartani's work is called Abjad. And Abjad
2: is the numbers that are equivalent to each letter in the Arabic language, and so what happens is that before Islam, the Arabs used to communicate with numbers. They have their own. Coding, I had no idea. Which is incredible. It's really incredible. And so a lot of even a lot of their transactions, a lot of their letters were all in numbers, and they understand one another. But when the Islam came, it reinforced the importance of of, of language through the Quran. So this culture and tradition of using abjad is really no longer there. So Donna reconceptualizes the abjad and it creates her own geometrical patterns and her own coding. So if her work was reproduced on a smaller scale, you could have your own language using those geometrical patterns, which is incredible. Really incredible. So
0: is this a complete vocabulary then? Yeah. This is like that's the entire the, alphabet. This is yeah. the entire thing. How many are there? On 28. 28, yeah. They're beautiful as well, too. Thank you. Yeah, they're really gorgeous. So let's go into one of the other artists there. And then Nisreen
2: Mohammadi A lot of Nasreen Mohammadi's photography was captured in the 70s. And most of her works on paper was done in the 80s. So it shows you how the photography paved way into her works on paper. And for people that are going to come to our institute and, and experience the exhibition, they will see how her perspective into photography is very abstract. You know, she could go into a monumental Islamic building and she would only capture the shadows and the lines.
0: We had said this when we were walking through there, I had said it, like, I wouldn't put an identifier on that as oh, being absolutely. Islamic at all. Oh, for and sure. to mention, when you come into the exhibition, each artist has their own wall yeah. in the space. So you're looking at a representation of this work over a, a period of time in some of these artists yeah. that, gives you, you get to stand back and actually get a sense of who they are. In a, for sure. it, I, I was impressed with the, the date range on a lot of these works as well, too. Like you say, you're going over 70s and 80s in some of this. Oh, for sure. So the grid comes back up again in her work as well, too. And these The grid
2: the, is very important in Islamic geometry because it balances. It's like the core. You can't start a geometrical pattern without having a grid, without having basis for it. Right. But the way Nisreen engages with it is
0: very abstract. And it's very subtle sometimes, too. And
2: very subtle. That's why people um, uh, sometimes refer to her as a minimalist, which you can see it visually, but right. it's not the case. And some people even look at her as a constructivist, too, because of her approach. And she's looked at a lot of Russian artists um, in the early 20th century that didn't define her practice. Which
0: is so funny with the the photos as well too because they're very ephemeral in some sense and the compositions are just really incredible. Yeah,
2: absolutely, and she goes back in her diary and speaks how Islamic geometry and Islamic architecture, how how that finds its way through her practice.
0: How were you introduced to her work? Um,
2: She had a retrospective at the Met uh, last year. And she's passed away now? She's passed away, yeah. She passed away very, very young um, in her late 40s, early 50s. Oh, really? Yeah, and she had Parkinson's disease. So um, for someone that has such fine training, and, and her, you've seen how, how... It's so detailed. How detailed and how, and how intricate and her work is. So it became very much problematic with her disease to continue that practice.
0: So did she stop working before she died?
2: She, you know, she had assistance, and she tried to work to her, to her the capacity, best her ability, yeah. but, but she couldn't. And uh, that's why a lot of her photography is... A lot of it is really a reflection I mean one it's a reflection that you see it through her works on paper but really that became her outlook to life right. um, she spent a lot of her uh, last years in her studio and her photographies were away where
1: was she
0: based do you know she was based in India she was in India Yes. Yeah. okay and we move on to the back wall
2: and then we move to Zirina Hashmi Zirina Hashmi was born the same year with
0: Zerina. She turned 80 this year. And they, were, they knew each other? They knew each other very well. Is that one of the reasons you curated them both into the exhibition or not? Not necessarily. No, not necessarily. But they, it, it's no small thing that they were having the communication and the, both the works speak yeah. to each other.
2: Yeah, no, for sure. And I didn't. When I looked at Nis- Nisreen's work, and a lot of people do pair Nisreen with with the with the Zarina. I didn't.
0: What is the purpose for that? Do you think it's just because they're because originally... they're
2: they're two well, the same generation, and because they're two artists from um, the Pakistan India area yeah. that don't engage in like a lot of the figurative works, right. which their contemporaries did,
0: which everybody else was yeah. doing.
2: So that's why they they look at them as their, but they're not. They're you know you, you see the. You, you see the similarities. But they're you, talking about different things. They're talking about different things and you can't pair them, pair them together without having a broader perspective of, of, of the narrative of, of those those two artists, even in relationship to Munir and to Donna. But what's incredible about Zerina is that this whole idea of displacement.
0: Um, uh, so you had told me the story about her, She's she is, she was from the region before Pakistan and India got split.
2: Yeah, before the independence of Pakistan and India, the lines of what was Pakistan and India was very much blurred. But people affiliated with this, at some point, this Pakistani nationalism. But then what happened is that, when during the independence, they made the borders very, very clear. So the people that were thought they were in Pakistan were no longer a All of a sudden they're Indian. They became Indian. But they don't identify as Indian. And they Indian. don't identify because we have to take into consideration that the majority of the Pakistani population is Muslim. Right. And in India, it's very much diverse. Right. So they're not, they, they were not exposed to that, that diversity.
0: Their community was something separate oh, from... Oh, for
2: sure, for sure. So this whole idea of displacement has haunted her all the way to New York when she finally had a home here in New York. They tried to evict her in the late '90s from her home, and so she developed this work in '99 that called "Home is a Form." Well, she place. was being evicted, or... yes, yeah, she luckily won the case, and she still lives in that. She's the only person that lives in that building. Oh, really? That's
0: more office than that. But it's it brings back this idea of displacement, and the memories oh, have sure. to be so
2: for sure. She starts raw. with she, You know she, what's incredible is that she starts the first row starts with the floor plans of her apartments. And the second row immediately transforms into this more Islamic geometry practice and into the cosmos and into the universe and to to astrology. It's just to say that, that this might be the home that I'm affiliated with right now, but there's this
0: greater home that I'm this home doesn't represent me. Yeah, for sure. I'm something greater than yeah, what this absolutely. one thing is so even if I get So then home becomes
2: a foreign place. Right. Uh, for her. And so she starts with the floor plans and into the cosmos and then it really rapidly um, evolves into more of an abstract approach in her work. And then what's interesting is that she titles the names of the works in Urdu. An Urdu the alphabet used is really, the, the Arabic alphabet, which is the same alphabet used in Farsi. The Persian language is, right. again used, which we see feeds its way into Munir's works in the 70s. So
0: it, it keeps cycling back through. It's yeah, because crazy. you
2: can't divorce language from geometry. Right. You it, really can They all inform each other too. Yeah, absolutely. So we go on to the fourth wall. We go on to the fourth wall in Munir Farman Farmayan. Munir was exiled and she left Iran in the 70s to come to live in New York. And all while the images she has of Iran are of those beautiful Islamic buildings, whether it's the tombs that are decorated with mirrors or the mosques. Right. So she always has that memory and nostalgia in her head. And all she could do is really work on paper because we could see in her later work how she wanted to work very closely with, with the mirrors. And the craftsmanship exists only in Iran. Right. So she's left with paper. So she starts really engaging with geometry through Western abstraction. And then and that's why it was very important for me to have works from the 70s so that people understand the conceptual nature of her work. Yeah. You know, it starts with a sketch. It starts with works on paper. It starts with the drawings. It eventually evolves into something Greater and evolves into sculptural work.
0: But to see the starting point for everything. It's very important, super important. I think it's
2: because it shows how much she was in line with her contemporaries here in the US. You know, there were movements happening here and she was part of them.
0: Well, I don't think as, a, as an audience and going to graduate school here in New York myself, we're not introduced into that, yeah. that being a part of the conversation. We're so narrowed in our point of view that New York is sort of the center of everything. So it brings us back to the Institute, bringing that conversation sort of to light.
2: Absolutely, and it's it was very important for us to start with this exhibition and to start with those four artists, and four artists that come from different parts of the world. Dana, Palestinian born in Jeddah, and Zirina and Nisreen are all the way in Pakistan and India, and Munirin is in... Um, is in Iran, and it shows the diversity within the Islamic civilization, right. but yet it shows how it's very much tied together, too. Right.
0: We have a tendency, we being the US, it's a tendency to stereotype what regionally Islam means.
2: Which, you know, it's, there's stereotypes everywhere. Right. So, it really, you know, at the end of the day, it's not something that's, you know, only. Restricted to people here in the States. I'm sure that right, there's people stereotypes. in the region have stereotypes about people here. But what's important is that we provide something, we provide a platform, a welcoming environment for people to look, if they have those stereotypes, look beyond them. To break we, that break. For, for break sure, that because we have a responsibility. We can blame the media all we want. And say, well, they're portraying us in, the people in really like this, this or like that, but what are we doing to change that? How are we you affecting know, change for sure? How are you know? How, how am I as as someone that lives in New York, become an active participant of the society here? Right. You know. So it's all about responsibilities, and that's one of the reasons uh, I saw the importance of starting uh, this uh, institute in New York as divorced. New York is from the rest of America. It's still really a place where, where all Americans make it a priority to visit. Right. You know, a lot of Americans that don't have the opportunities to fly beyond this continent come to New York as a metropolitan because they see it town. as a hub. Yeah,
0: and it is. It is a hub. I was looking. I was doing some reading. I guess first I should read the about section of the center online. It was sort of like a what, where, why. Yeah. And the why part of it, I'd like to read, I was going to take a section out of it, but it struck me as being something that was really nice, so I want to read the whole thing real quick, if you don't mind. Sure. The continued misconceptions of the Arab and Islamic worlds have limited and damaged cultural interactions and exchanges with the United States. The lack of facilities, resources, and opportunities dedicated to the Arab and Muslim artists in New York City has continued to alienate these individuals from a broader global conversation. IAIA, which is the Institute. Will establish itself as a beacon to challenge the social misconceptions and artistic stereotypes. IAIA will foster a dialogue between civilizations while dissipating notions of borders by bringing to the fore a thorough appreciation of the region's own modern and contemporary art. Founded on the value of nurturing art, it will be dedicated to both preservation and revival of Arab and Islamic art." It's a very wide and sort of vast goal, but it's also very noble and
2: it gives us time and it gives us the opportunity to evolve you like that broader for sure because our mission is not limited to what is happening today in terms of the socio-political climate whether here in the u.s. whoever's
0: elected right now it goes beyond four years
2: oh for sure and it goes beyond even even what what what's happening in the region as well so we have a, a responsibility towards looking out to the future we don't want to limit our mission to something that is limited to you know the socio-cultural environment of, of of the region and here we need to have an understanding and we need to give ourselves the space in ten years we're still able to conduct exhibitions and publications that are relevant to the time in well, the you don't want to so, just
0: be reactionary. Oh, for sure. Well, so this brings it back into the same conversation you were having about the conversations being short and dictated by an exhibition that might happen at the Met, but then that conversation doesn't continue, continue past that time.
2: And, you know, the, p- people need to understand that the Islamic civilization is vast. Right. You know, and you can't, you can't cover everything in such a short time. It goes on and on and on. The sciences and the knowledge and the technologies, the architectures that, that have found its place in, in the world we're in today have took civilizations and I mean generations. The first translation projects that happened in the Islamic civilization was in the 9th and 10th century where in modern-day Iraq, specifically in Baghdad, there was a library called House of Wisdom. And House of Wisdom, what they did is that they've invited Greek philosophers, Christian scholars, Jewish scholars from Europe into Baghdad and helped translate everything from Greek philosophies to sciences, to um, astronomy, to medicine, that was compiled in Europe into Arabic. During the same time, in uh, Europe, it was the um, Dark Ages.
0: Right.
2: So, and the Muslims were not able to do it without the help of scholars from, from Europe. Right. So the translations that happened that took place in Baghdad through hundreds of years found their way all the way to south of Spain. And eventually, in south of Spain, where it was part of the Islamic civilization, they were then translated into European language or languages. Which helped the Renaissance. So it cycled right back through. Yeah, so it's, it's really vast. And if you're looking at art that has been produced in the Islamic civilization, it's quite vast too. And if we're looking at art that's being produced now in the Arab and Islamic world, people think it's only political. And it goes very much beyond that. So that's why, you know, when we were, when we were building this institute and, and the mission of it, it had to be an, a mission that is encompassing. It had to be a mission that is looking ahead towards the future, too. And we didn't want something that's limited and narrowed to what's happening today.
0: There's so many questions that can go off of that. But one of the things that i would seen as well is you're going to do education programs through the institute and a residency program, possibly? Yeah. I realize this is the beginning of something, but do you have ideas of what that will entail?
2: For example, in Philadelphia, there's this incredible nonprofit that's called Al-Bustan Seeds, and what they do is that they promote the Arabic language and the Arabic culture through schools across the U.S., and specifically the East Coast. So what happens now with us being here in New York is that we collaborate with Al-Bustan Seeds, and we make sure that courses and those classes go beyond the language and go beyond the culture and actually provide courses and classes on art from the region. Are you going to
0: be able to facilitate that here in New York as well?
2: For sure, it could be here in New York, it could be in Philadelphia, it could be somewhere in the US.
0: Well this this was one of my other questions. I'm from Iowa, so we'd spoken about this very briefly before I came through and one of the things that I see with sort of the, the misconceptions is that and it's sort of what we were talking about, too, with the Institute is if it's not seen, it's not understood, yeah. if you're not surrounded by it. So one of the problems in the Midwest is we grew up in a very sheltered culture. Yeah. This idea of bringing these things into communities where people don't necessarily understand what that is or how that affects, I think is really interesting.
2: And you know, the C in our program, which is called REC, is, stands for collaboration. And we will do everything in our capacity, but what what makes cultural institutions and our institutions successful is the idea of collaboration. So we could reach out to museums in Iowa and see, for example, if our shows can travel there or if we could build shows together or talks. So, you know, it's really only the beginning now. And that's why we, we, it was very important for us to build, when, when we built this institute, the emphasis on collaboration. Otherwise, what we're going to do here in New York is just going to be in New York.
0: Well, this is, this is what I was asking, yeah. because a lot of the, the information online about the institute is all about New York. It's very New York-centric. But really, this is just a hub to branch out and oh, for sure to expand sort of a knowledge base in that conversation. It's about what's in this exhibition, language and
2: and, you know, whatever, produce, whatever books are being produced um, at AYA will eventually find its way in, uh, in libraries and universities. Right. And we will make sure that happens. You know, right now we're in a hub. Right now we have to acknowledge that a lot of uh, opportunities and a lot of the support we got is really here in New York. Yeah. This, is, this is only a hub to, to reach out beyond, beyond this.
0: I want to talk a little bit about you personally. If you don't mind. Sure. <laughs> because you yourself, basically, like, what's the impetus for coming to New York? Why did you move here? Like, you are an art collector yourself, and you have other interests. I don't consider interests. myself... Uh, you do have a collection of art, I've as, acquired, as do I. Yeah, I've, I've acquired work. <laughs> I've acquired
2: great works over the, the course of uh, So what type of stuff do you collect? Years, uh, a lot through the help of Veronica. Fernandez, I was I was blessed to have met her, and I was I was blessed to have had in a in a way her training too. I've acquired work, but the works that I have are very much personal because I'm a poet, and I always say that whatever I'm not able to to accomplish through my words or to express through my words, art does that for me. It has the capability of right. of entering my life and my character in a very, very intimate way. So I look at those artworks beyond, you know, the visual and beyond what they represent. And they become something important. It sounds like you live with them as well, too. Oh, for sure.
0: Uh, One other thing that I thought was really interesting is the World Cup is coming. Doha. Yeah. Qatar. But the the interesting part about that for me is it's bringing people into a region that they typically don't associate with that sport. It's
2: very much a stereotype when people think that the region, especially the, the Arabian Peninsula, it's not influenced by soccer. I mean, soccer is a major, major part of- It's huge. Yeah. Huge. I mean, we're, we're live in such a small country, yeah. but we have, we have over 12, 12, football clubs and we have leagues. Oh, I had we no idea. We have three leagues. I mean, in such a small country, and everyone becomes part of it. It really becomes a way in which you bring every you bring everyone together. It's a it's a very much misconception that the region is not involved with with soccer. The way I see it is that it's ironically the U.S. is not. Um, uh, very much involved with...
0: That is absolutely true. <laughs> yeah.
2: So, I mean, you know, the, the, the reason I use the term soccer, I would usually, if I was... Football. In an interview right. somewhere else, I'd say football. But You're here, saying it so the Americans only, can understand. Yeah, <laughs> but only in the U.S. is, is uh, football, considered, football considered soccer. But I think the importance, the importance of having the football in the, the World Cup, the FIFA World Cup 2022 in Qatar, is one to bring people into the region into the region and give people the opportunity to to interact and to experience the culture. The culture there. Yeah. It's very important because football again is, is beyond just well we're the breaking sports. stereotypes it's, again. It goes right? into it goes into much more beyond that. And I think I think it's important for FIFA to give an opportunity for smaller countries. Yeah. and not only that i mean south africa as well football there they gave an opportunity for people to experience that part of the world so i think it's you know it just becomes then it becomes very pre- predictable if you know the fifa is going to go back again to keep cycling know, back Europe to, Europe to and, you know so i think it's yeah. very important to it's a responsibility that, that that fifa has i'm i'm glad that they gave qatar the opportunity and i am sure and I know that Qatar is capable of hosting such a big event from infrastructure perspective, logistics, just the fact that you can, you can be in one country and have the opportunity to watch two games in one night yeah. because as you know, for example, when the, football, when the FIFA was in Brazil, you had to take yeah. a flight from Sao Paulo to Rio in order to, and that was not possible. Yeah, it was crazy. So you bring, you, you, you give people that have paid money um, and people that have waited four years. The
0: experience to have it all in one to, spot. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. And I think that's the beauty
0: about it. Uh, you, how often do you go back?
2: I go back
0: once or twice a year. Once or twice, but New York is your hub. New York is my home. Um, Mohammed, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. My pleasure, thank you. It was very last minute, but I really appreciate it. No, my pleasure and my honor. Thank you so much. Thank you.